It's Thursday, March 26th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Aaron Schock, member of Congress, soon to be former member of Congress, made his farewell address today. Six years ago, I entered this chamber and raised my right arm. In order to block out that garish eagle seal and better visualize the walls draped in velvet and the gavels turned into beautiful little handbells with which to summon servants. Yeah, well, he was the guy who was bounced because he faced a number of press stories about misuse of public funds, like redecorating his office to look like a set from Downton Abbey or reimbursements for mileage he never drove. And here's when I didn't even realize this, that he hired a photographer to accompany him on an anti-poverty trip to India, and he got the anti-poverty charity to cover the photographer's bills. To be fair, Aaron Schock's abs have to be lit just right to really pop. So every congressman has high self-regard. Aaron Schock just had high self-regard about his appearance, the literal form of vanity which rubs DC the wrong way. Remember, DC is supposed to be Hollywood for ugly people. Anyway, Shock, of course, compared his situation to Lincoln. No, not the failed savings and loan, actual Abraham Lincoln, who was the congressman from the same district that Shock served. But in the end, Aaron Shock said this. Over the past six years, I've come to understand that this institution is far more bigger than any one person. And we have a far more bigger show for you today. Actually, it's just far more better. Adam Davidson is here to talk about the immigrant experience. And speaking of immigrants, I'll talk about hunger strikes and the DREAM Act. But first, well, here's Adam. Well, now I, Mike Pesca, the child of a child of a child of immigrants, am joined by, you're not going to believe this, the child of a child of a child of, I think a child, but on the other side, just a child of immigrants, Adam Davidson. Adam is the founder of Planet Money. He's a columnist for the New York Times. He is the man behind the working podcast for Slate. And it was in the New York Times magazine that he wrote about immigration, the financial costs or not costs. What's the opposite, Adam? Benefits, would you say? Benefits. He wrote about the benefits of immigration. How you doing? I'm well. Hey, Mike. Did I get the generations right? Well, yeah. My my great-grandparents on my mom's side came over, but on my dad's side, yeah? they came on the Mayflower. So there, I am. I think it's 25 generations. So people who don't like immigration say they take our jobs, they take jobs that American would do. That's pretty much the main point and focus of that. What do economists say about that? So I would say what there is pretty much zero debate about among economists is that high-skilled immigrants, so immigrants above the median, let's just say college graduates. Sometimes you hear high-skill, you maybe think that means someone with a PhD mm-hmm. or a, a medical doctor or In something. In the world of economics, this means... We're talking about people with a BA, people who come to America as a BA. There is pretty much zero debate among professional economists. That group of people, high-skilled immigrants, help the country. They make, on average the rest of the country richer. And it's very confusing to economists that there is any restriction at all on skilled immigrants or that if there has to be a restriction that it isn't far, far, far more generous, that we don't have, you know, right now we offer something like half a million immigration visas a year. Why is that not a million? Why is that not 1.5 million? The evidence is it would make all of us richer. So that's skilled immigrants. And I think many people would say, well, that's skilled immigrants. But we're talking about people who come up from Central America or Mexico, sneak over the border, have no skills. They take jobs away from Americans, don't they? He said, tossing the softball. Right. So so here is where there is a slight debate. Okay. Okay. So 
long term, so if you have enough time to adjust, you know, over a few years, I would say nearly all economists agree that low-skill immigrants, we're talking about people who didn't complete high school, maybe didn't even attend high school, largely in America, that means people from Mexico, Central America, that long-term, they also make America better off. There is a debate, and this is the one debate on immigration that I'm aware of, which is, do they hurt low-skilled native-born Americans or low-skilled immigrants who came many years ago? And this is particularly focused on African-American males in inner cities. So the argument is, yes, they may benefit America overall, low-skill immigrants. You and I, as people with college degrees, we're not competing with them for jobs, et cetera. But they may hurt by a bit. Mm -hmm. So the leading proponent of the idea that low-skill immigrants hurt native-born Americans is George Borjas at Harvard University. And he says... By his calculation, they hurt the average high school dropout in America by about $1,000 a year, Mm -hmm. which he says is not a huge number to you and me, but to a poor person is a huge amount of money. Now, that is highly debated. And I would say Borjas is an outlier. I would say most other economists believe either there is no ill effect on low-skill natives or a very small effect, much smaller than $1,000 a year. So near ubiquity on the uh, take jobs away argument, you know, what about the lowest rung of sector, tiny bits of disagreements? How do they even figure that out? So economists are always looking for natural experiments. It's really hard because we can't, you can't do what medicine does. You can't run randomized controlled trials and, you know, bring 100,000 immigrants to, you know, to six randomly selected cities and don't bring them to. So they look for natural moments where there were population shocks, Mm -hmm. immigration shocks. Probably the most famous one is the Mariel Boatlift in southern Florida, where in three months in 1980, 120-something thousand Cubans landed in southern Florida. About Half of them or so ended up in Miami, about 45,000 of them of working age. So that represented 7% of Miami's working population at the time. So it's in three months we see, boom, this sudden influx of workers. And David Card, a labor economist, showed that they had basically no impact on wages or overall employment for the people who had been there previously. There's been quibbles on this. There's been arguments on this. Uh, some people say, well, David Card miscalculated it. This guy, George Borjas at Harvard, his counterargument is you have to look at national levels where because maybe what happened was people moved out of Florida because they saw that there was all this new competition for jobs. So you'll never get a perfect number because there's always some countervailing something that happened. I mean, the yeah. early 1980s, there's a pretty screwed up economy in America. And then there was a lot of growth in America. Miami was going through a lot of changes in other Mm -hmm. ways. So you you can never have a clean experiment. I would say generally, if you don't see big effects, if you don't see huge effects that everybody sees, then you're probably talking about minor effects. I mean, that's sort of a tautology, but I think it's true. So the simple fact that the argument is over such a relatively small difference makes me think that 
there can't be some massive, massive effect if nobody's able to measure a massive, massive effect. Yeah, and I'm thinking of the other mass migrations, the sudden shocks of migrations, just the ones that come to mind, you know, uh, Vietnam, the Laotians, the Hmong people coming to different communities, some Texas, some Minnesota, I think been mostly a boon there. Uh, thinking about the Holocaust, Jews fleeing Europe, certainly a boon there. Can't really think of too many where this a sudden shock where you say, oh, yeah, that was when, you know, Kansas City was ruined because all those uh, uh, Swedes showed up. Right. So there, there's this concept that an economist, Giovanni Perry, is particularly associated with, uh, that immigrants are complements, not substitutes for native workers. So um, in, and in economics, that's generally uh, that's kind of a standard way of looking at all sorts of things like, you know, the iPhone is a substitute for a Samsung phone, but the iPhone is a complement to headphones. Yeah. If you sell more iPhones, you're probably going to sell fewer Samsung phones. But if you sell more iPhones, you're probably going to sell more headphones. So headphone manufacturers should not be upset. Oh, everyone's paying money on iPhones. So uh, Giovanni Perry used this analysis on immigrants and native workers. And he feels that he has shown, and he's persuaded a lot of people, including me, that he has shown that very often immigrants work alongside native-born workers. So the classic example is a construction site. Mm -hmm. And I actually looked into this. I drove around. I visited a bunch of construction sites in Brooklyn. And what you typically see is two or three native-born uh, Americans who are own the construction company and have the skilled jobs. They're carpenters, they're electricians, and then a whole bunch of lower skilled workers who are doing kind of the grunt work, carrying stuff, moving stuff around. Having them there makes the overall price cheaper because you're not paying some union electrician or whatever a huge amount to sweep up and move things around. So it makes the overall job cheaper. That means more people use construction services. There's more decks added. There's yeah. more, you know, swimming pools added. So the pie gets bigger and the skilled worker benefits. Again, that's not saying everybody. That's not saying there aren't skilled carpenters who haven't been hurt. But on balance, the addition of low skilled workers is a complement, a benefit to skilled workers. Well, what about the overall net cost and benefits. So we're talking about this scenario is an immigrant, I guess we have in our heads, maybe skilled, maybe low skilled, of working age comes here. What about an immigrant whose whole family comes here and then the family uses services and then the family uses schooling, which, you know, costs the taxpayer? Is that, are we, are economists sure that that's all of a net benefit when you subtract all the services that government and taxpayers provide for the immigrants? The general picture you get is immigrants, and, and in this case, particularly low-skilled, often undocumented immigrants, are a net burden to state and local government and a net benefit to the federal government. So, Well, yes, yeah, schools are not paid for by the federal right, government. Right, right. And, yeah. and a lot of undocumented workers will pay into Social Security. They have, you know, a fake Social Security number yep. that's paid into. And, and the estimate is Social Security has something like $300 billion more dollars than it would if there had never been those undocumented workers. So overall, if you add the benefits to the federal government and subtract the pain to the state and local, it comes out to a positive number. So the impact of even undocumented, service-seeking, low-skilled workers, it is a net positive to government, but it the pain is felt 
in certain municipalities much more than elsewhere. And we don't have a good system in our country of transferring the benefits on the federal level to the pain on the local level. What's an aspect of our immigration policy that you think is good? I think we have a pretty bad one. I got to say, when you look (laughs) around the world, I think we have a pretty bad one. I mean, the super high skill, the people with, you know, engineering degrees and PhDs and physics and math and medical doctors, I don't understand how we, we don't just eagerly invite all of them. Immigration is essential. When you start looking deeper into the 21st century, you take away the immigrants and we're in real, real, real trouble. And frankly, look at Japan. They're in profound trouble. Do you think this may be politically a situation that solves itself because as America becomes more brown, maybe with immigrants, legal, illegal, all that, the willingness to open our borders increases. So eventually we'll demographically solve ourselves because we've allowed the amount of immigration we have. Yeah. I mean, we certainly see that immigrants are more pro-immigrant. We yeah. as a nation are more pro-immigrant. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, a majority of Americans, a majority of people who self-identify as members of the Tea Party or as Republicans are for amnesty for people currently here. I'd also point out, we are a very underpopulated geography mm-hmm. in America. Yeah. The Even density of America. The density of America Thanks, is, is shocking. Yeah. yeah. No. I mean, I mean, yes. Like, so, so my, Montana, Wyoming, certainly Alaska, these are among the least populated bits of land in the world. In the I industrialized mean, world, certainly. Yes. Yeah. You really have to get to pretty obscure island nations or the center of Australia to find places in the world that are less densely populated than many of our states. But even when you go to New England to the mid-Atlantic states, our most densely populated area, we could double or triple and still be well below France, Germany, Spain, Italy, places we think we visit, we like, yeah. you know, we go places to- Places with countrysides. Places without with Without country- a lot of people. Without and a lot cows. Of, yes, yes, exactly. So from a purely use of land standpoint, I mean, we could easily double our population and still be among the less- densely populated industrialized countries in the world. How many NFL teams could we have, though? We, we're already up to 32. You're saying the Dakotas are going to get one? I don't know. In my scenario, in my ideal world, the Dakotas have, together, North and South, have 26 football teams. Dystopia or utopia, you decide, Dakotas. Adam Davidson writes for the New York Times Magazine, founded Planet Money, and you got to check out his working podcast from the Panoply Network. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. So as I always tell you, the gist is part of the Panoply Network. Other than a fun thing to say, what does that mean? Well, it means other great podcasts to wit. Hi, I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, Vultures TV critic. On this week's episode of the Vulture TV podcast, Vultures TV editor Gazelle Mommy, Vulture TV columnist Margaret Lyons and I are going to discuss the most shocking moment in television so far this year and the tortured existence of NBC's weirdly brilliant comedy community. You'll find the Vulture TV podcast at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm.
And now the spiel, hungry for change. Today in New York, a group of college students are drawing attention to a government decision by staging one of the boldest forms of nonviolent protest known. With details, here is New York One. If I have this small power to stand here and speak for all the students that had dropped out of college, that had dropped out of high school, and demand the Dream Act, I will do it. And I will do anything as it takes. The what it takes is a hunger strike there being described by Denise Vivar, one of the student protesters. The strikers, the hunger strikers, are using this method to draw attention to their cause and attention they've drawn. New York Times, Daily News, CBS, NPR, they're engaging in a hunger strike. Now, when I heard this news, I said, wow, that is extreme. But I caught myself because I said, wait a minute, I know what hunger strike means now. It doesn't mean what it meant when Bobby Sands died in a Northern Ireland prison after a 66-day hunger strike, or when Gandhi went on hunger strikes, or when Guantanamo prisoners go on hunger strikes and have to be force-fed. Now a hunger strike, usually most hunger strikes are done not to die, but as a form of symbolism. Solid foods are refused, fluids are taken in, and in a lot of cases, the fluids have nutrients. You know what? Thank God. Thank God no one is dying, that no one's health, at these students' health, they're not really at stake. But we do need to tweak our vocabulary. This is a solid foods fast, right? Yom Kippur is more stringent than this form of protest. Ramadan for 12 hours, pretty much the same thing. This symbolic fast began yesterday. It will last until a state version of the DREAM Act is put in the budget. But the budget is expected to be announced tomorrow. So this is about a three-day hunger strike, actually a three-day symbolic hunger strike undertaken by maybe 50 people. So let's also talk about what the protesters are demanding. They're not demanding a state version of the DREAM Act. I mean, they like that, but that's not what this hunger strike is about. This hunger strike is trying to force Governor Cuomo to include in the budget provisions that would essentially be a state version of the DREAM Act. Cuomo supports the DREAM Act. He tried to get it in the budget, but he knew Republicans wouldn't go for it. And he said, rather than hold up the entire budget over this provision that I know will not pass, let's take it out of the budget. Also, it doesn't really belong in the budget. So that's what they're striking over. So I'd like to expand this out of the dark corners of New York politics, maybe give you something you can relate to if you're a student, if you believe in the DREAM Act. This is what the bill, if it were to pass in New York, would do. It wouldn't allow anyone who graduated a New York high school to attend college in New York paying in-state tuition. You know why it wouldn't do that? Because that is already allowed. It doesn't matter where you were born. It doesn't matter what your legal status is. You graduate from a New York high school, you could go to college in New York, a New York State college paying in-state tuition. It's only about financial aid. Now, I looked up how much it costs to go to school, what Monica Sibri, who's leading this group, what she pays. It's $3,015 a semester at the College of Staten Island. Now, certainly a break in that tuition would be welcome, but we're talking about a hunger strike, or we would be if you take the term hunger strike at face value over the difference between $3,000 a semester and $2,000 or $1,000 if you qualify for financial aid, maybe full financial aid. It's not nothing, but is it life and death? All right. There are four states that have a version of this bill which New York is considering. Those states are California, Washington, New Mexico, and Texas. Texas, yeah. 
Texas. They allow high school graduates to apply for financial aid. These protests aren't the biggest in the world. Like I said, 50 people were there. They didn't get the most attention. They weren't like the story out of Wisconsin in 2011, but they reminded me of this. When when unions occupied the Capitol, when they filled the rotunda at the State House, when they filled the State House grounds. Now I heard we will win, but I also want to say that we are winning. And there, these anti-Governor Scott Walker protests got scads of media attention, drove a recall petition. We were told then that the people united could never be defeated. MSNBC thought so. They planned around-the-clock coverage of the recall election. They expected it to be a drama-filled barn burner. Here now, Rachel Maddow on MSNBC very soon after the polls closed. Now, we all thought it was going to be a long night, and we were prepared for it. We were ready. I had chocolate for dinner. Or maybe the recall of Governor Scott Walker would be actually be decided in a matter of 49 minutes. 49 minutes. 49 minutes after the polls closed in Wisconsin, NBC News declared Scott Walker the projected winner in the Wisconsin governor recall. It did not even take an hour. Scott Walker defeated his opponent 53 to 46 percent. That is a pretty decent win in a purple state. In fact, all that attention pushed Scott Walker into the national spotlight. He is now running first or second in most polls to be the GOP's nominee for president. My point is this. Protests are a right. They're a good. They sometimes certainly are an indication of strong popular sentiment. They could be a very useful pressure release valve. But sometimes they are the noisy, drowning out the many. There is an argument, maybe, that more vehement voices should be heard. That if you care more, that matters. That the the union member, whose very livelihood depends on collective bargaining, has a bigger fish to fry than just some yahoo from Whitefish Bay who says, ah, screw the firemen. Maybe the protesters who are on hunger strike, or quote-unquote hunger strike, care a lot more about the DREAM Act because it's their dream. And what if some yutz from Yonkers goes to the polls with an uninformed anti-immigrant bias? I know we say his vote counts as much as their vote, and maybe that seems unfair in this situation, and I will acknowledge that. But if you want to give weighted grades for those with the most passion, I'll advise you this. Do not read the comments section on any mainstream news article about the DREAM Act, because there is a lot of passion there. Backwards, benighted passion. In the end, Scott Walker won, he gutted the unions, and in that case, yeah, maybe some food was taken out of the mouths of union workers. Or in the case of similarly impassioned New York college students, maybe now food can be put into their mouths. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Andrea Salenzi. She is refusing all infusions of smart water until NBC brings back Bad Judge. Managing producer Joel Meyer is refusing to eat all purple vegetables other than eggplants and onions until they bring that beat back. Executive producer Andy Bowers is threatening to eat steak and eggs and then sit in the middle of a vegan place and sweat profusely unless China allows the Dalai Lama not to be reincarnated. He says he might not want to be reincarnated. China's not buying that. The Gist is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash 
slash panoply. Speaking of which, panoply is looking for the next great salesperson based in New York. If you are passionate about podcasts, want to contribute to a winning team and have digital sales experience, or know someone like that, please send your resume to hiring at panoply.fm. Also, the gist is still doing its Not A Movie contest. Put a hashtag in front of Not A Movie and then suggest a name for a movie that doesn't exist. They might be giants. Just might turn your suggestion into a song. Some suggestions we've got lately. Donde esta mi queso? Parting New York. Parentheses, the Robert Moses story. My first affair with death. Squandered quills of yore. Or here's a good one, opting out. You could really make a song and a movie about that. Gaff reel. Standard deviation, sneezing with open eyes, the parrot, talk again. We'll talk again soon. Thanks for listening.